You're listening to Byzantine Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture in collaboration with the Melkite Eparchy of Newton. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and director of the Institute and host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things. The treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. Welcome back to all of our participants for our lectionary reflection in the Byzantine lectionary. Now for the Sunday of the prodigal son, which is our kind of third Sunday of preparation, or our pre-Lenten preparations, following the theme of repentance and of exile, and really of remembrance. Uh, remembering from where we have come from, and sadly, the, the state we've made of our life. There's an interesting, just before we get into the text uh, of the gospel, there is an interesting um, addition to Orthros this Sunday, and that is the chanting of Psalm 137, um, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat, and we wept when we remembered Sion. How shall, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I have forgotten thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If, if I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joys. I, I want to just point that out to you. Well, because it's, a new, it's an unusual text uh, that's appointed for this particular Sunday, the Sunday of the prodigal son. And we rarely have an opportunity to look at the Old Testament readings that, that were traditionally assigned to the liturgical services in most of our parishes. Most likely, those Old Testament readings are, well, never, uh, never read, even if they're appointed at Vespers. Um, and I want to have a chance to just look at that real quick, Father Sebastian, as we jump in here to the text of the prodigal son this text of the of the psalm by the rivers of babylon there we sat and we wept when we remembered sion this whole theme of of exile and understanding not only our christian life but our christian life rooted in the life of christ himself is can be understood in terms of this exile in babylon and I think it's an important theme for our participants to recall for us an exile which took place 500 years before the coming of Christ, but uh, a problem which had remained really in the heart of the people leading up to and during the time of Christ is they're searching for an answer to this problem of the Babylonian exile. So not to give you too hard of a, of a job, but can you give us in 30 seconds or less uh, this 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 context this picture of this exile in Babylon and uh, and how it the problem really remains to the coming of Christ. Sure. So they in a nutshell, the first thing to remember is what we find in the New Testament over and over. Jesus says it. The lawyers, when they talk to him, say it. The whole point of all the law and the prophets was to direct 
Israel to love Yahweh, love the God of Abraham beyond any other gods, love him alone and their neighbors are self because the neighbor was in the image likeness of God, just like they were. And so they had to love that, which they could see if they're going to say they're loving that, which they cannot see. So there was, that was it. That's really it. It was really an attempt to restore the relationship of man to fellow man and to God in the garden. That's really what, so the, the, the Torah, all the little laws, you know, no bacon, things like that. Those are all to keep them on that track. Some of the laws don't do this. Don't touch that. A lot of those are intended to keep them separate from the culture that was around them, the pagan culture. If they couldn't do these certain things, they couldn't have bacon for breakfast. They couldn't have ham for dinner. Well, they weren't going to be invited over to the Canaanite's house next door to have a barbecue because they couldn't eat the same food. So this kept them out of communion with their Gentile pagan neighbors and then kept them ideally to do what they're supposed to do. And that is remain monotheist. It's like a parent with a child. Don't do this. Don't touch the knives in the kitchen. You don't touch electricity. You don't touch. These are things we give rules to our kids when they grow up, of course, they're allowed to use a knife in the kitchen. They're allowed to plug something in the wall. They're allowed to do these things because they understand and they understand what's dangerous uh, with these things. But a little kid, not, not so. So God gives them all of these laws, some positive, some negative, to keep them to being what he needs them to be. And that is that monotheistic nation in communion with him and through which he will reveal himself to all the nations so they all can be brought into the kingdom of God which was for the purpose of the call of Abraham. Of course, they didn't do that. And that's how they ended up in Babylon exile. If we read all the prophets, they all say the same thing. They all, the, the people of Israel eventually fell into paganism, polytheism. They went back to Egypt in their hearts. They went back to Egypt in their worship. Abraham, uh, they went back to where Abraham was called for, uh, from Mesopotamia. They returned to the place where Abraham was called from. He was called from polytheism, paganism of Mesopotamia just like his descendants were later called from that in Egypt to be that monotheistic people. But they became like the nations that they were dwelling among. And so God sends them back to the very place where Abraham was called from. And he said, there, go. There, you're among the nations now. You can worship all the gods you want. And, of course, then they returned. When they returned, the prophets have all said, the, the, the kingdom would be restored. The Messiah would appear, the, the king, the uh, glory cloud would appear in the temple. They returned. They rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the city. But, and they even had independence for a brief moment during the Maccabean revolt. During the 500 years from the Babylon exile to the coming of Jesus, they had, they had all the externals. They had the, the, the temple rebuilt. The city was rebuilt. They had independence for a brief time. But in the end, the, whole thing, the, the purpose of all this was missing. The earthly Messiah was not there. And the heavenly king, the glory cloud in the temple was not there. The two kings they were waiting for had not yet returned. And so the people were beginning to wonder, what's the point of all this? You, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm glad we brought this up, I think, as a, as a backdrop to the story of the parable of the prodigal son. Because that Old Testament background in which Christ is preaching, he's, he's got this whole context around him and those that are listening to him understand in terms of their experience. You know, I was reading uh, Alexander Schmemann on this, his commentary on for this coming Sunday, 
And he's talking about that, that, that exact point. He says, those that do not have this experience of exile, realization of how far they've fallen away, nor a remembrance of where they've come from, cannot truly enter into this Sunday or this whole season of Great Lent. It's a challenge that we all face in our American society to think that we're self-sufficient and kind of okay. It's only a realization that we're not okay, that there's something seriously wrong with the situation which we find ourselves exiled from God due to sin. But here, this, the biblical background to the prodigal son is this very point. It's the reason why we're reading this psalm to kind of plug us back into that historical biblical context. It's so important to be able to read these texts properly in that context rather than simply applying them immediately to our situation today. It's only in understanding that historical biblical context that we can properly apply it then to our spiritual life. So let's look back. Let's look now at this text of Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, verse 11 through 32. We're also, by the way, going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 through 20. Uh, So we'll get right here into the gospel text. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. The Lord told this parable, a man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that falls to me. And he divided his possessions between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered up all his wealth and traveled to a far country. And there he squandered his fortune in loose living. And after he had spent all, there came a severe famine over the country, and he began to suffer from it. And he went and joined one of the local landowners, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. And he longed to fill himself with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one offered to give give them to him. But when he had come to his senses, he said, How many hired men in my father's house have bread in abundance while I am perishing with hunger? I will get up and go to my father and will say to them, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and went to his father. And while he was yet a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion, and ran and fell upon his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servant, Fetch quickly the best robe and put it on him, and give him a, a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and bring out the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and make merry, because this my son was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and is found. And they began to make merry. Now his elder son was in the the field. And as he came close to the house, he heard music and dancing. And calling one of the servants, he asked what this meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has gotten him back, because he's gotten him back safe. But he was angered and would not go in. His father therefore came out and began to beg him. But he answered him and said to his father, Look, these many years I have been serving you and have never disobeyed any of your orders. And yet you had never given me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you have killed for him the fatted calf. But he said to him, Son, 
You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we were bound to make merry and rejoice. For this, your brother was dead and has come to life. He was lost and is found. Father, place for us, place us in the context of this gospel passage, especially in light of the parables that are now given in, in the synoptic gospels. The parables obviously are meant to be an invitation to us to dive into a, a deeper meaning than just the surface level of, of what, is, what is being told to us in the story. We'll have a chance to jump into that. But give us the context in the gospel, kind of where do we stand in the gospel story? So this is a, a whole section of parables in Luke's gospel, a number of these, and they're, it's typical of Luke's way of, or Luke's way of talking about Jesus's parables and about Jesus's uh, activities. He tends to tell the stories about Jesus in a triad, and that we've talked about this before. We're seeing a lot of these in preparation for Great Lent. We tend to see these, uh, we typically get the readings from Luke, and it's, and it's because of how this triad works. So we have a, a triad. First, there is usually the main character, the, the, the master or the father of a household or God. Or if it's not in a parable, if it's actually just in a story, like a, a story of Jesus, Jesus is often that main character. And then you've got the two sub-characters that will come to talk to Jesus, like Zacchaeus, there's the crowd in Zacchaeus. And then there's also in parables, then you'll have you know, two servants or two sons and things like that. Like we have Publican and the Pharisee. and Yeah, the public and the Pharisee, right? And then God is the kind of the invisible main character, obviously. So as we read this story, we can hear certainly, just from, even from an American standpoint, how bad this kid is living and what he, the decisions he's made. But from a Jewish standpoint, it's even worse. If we go back, it says he's the younger of the two. In the, in that, in the Old Testament, the system of inheritance was the, older, the, first, the eldest son would receive either everything and then was expected to distribute or care for the rest of the brethren, the rest of the family, in place of his dead father. So he'd either be handed over all of the inheritance, basically take the place of his father, and then be the one who then distributes as needed kind of everything, just like the father had been doing all those years. The other system was that the, they would count up the number of sons of a man and then add one. And then the eldest son would get the double portion. So he got a portion like everyone else did, but he got extra. And the extra, again, was intended to help him be kind of like that dad figure that you had, you know, cared for the others uh, as, as he was able. So here we have a younger son. Then Luke doesn't just tell us it's a son. It's the younger son asking for his inheritance and asking for his inheritance before his father's dead, which is basically saying, dad, I really don't care. You're alive. I don't care. I just want my material wealth. And then he he... He, so he, he then he leaves off, goes off into a far country, which again, couldn't be more offensive to a Jew, right? And especially if you look at Psalm 137 that you read, right? This idea of, of the promised land, this is the inheritance to have this land. So here this man leaves the promised land. He leaves his inheritance, which is, he leaves the place that God had given to his family line, his descendancy, 
to go live in a far off Gentile country. So he forsakes his father. He forsakes his family. He forsakes the land. He forsakes his people. And then he takes that wealth he had. And rather than say, maybe invest it with bankers or something or whatever, make some investments so you can bring some money home, he blows it all on loose living, prostitutes and parties or whatever. But then the story gets even worse. He gets what he deserves. And anyone listening to the story say, well, of course this is, you know, now finally he's got, he's got what's coming up. Right, there it is. He has to go to work now for somebody. Instead of working for his father, his Jewish father, and, and the land that God gave him, and, and, and really investing in his own life because he's helping his father gain wealth, so, and then that will be something he would inherit in the future. Well, he's cut himself off from all of that. He's now in a foreign land working for pagan Gentiles. And then, as you'd expect, he sends them out to eat or to, to care for the swine. And so it just shows this is what he's become. This is where, where it's all gone. And so now he ends up, he ends up out there with the swine and he's hungry. And he can't even eat the pods the just the worthless food that they were feeding to the swine they wouldn't even allow him to eat that and then he returns to his senses and heads home father you you, you know you began to touch upon this but i'd like to go a little further with it the, about this um, the symbolism here that jesus uses the imagery that jesus uses in the parable to draw us to a deeper meaning of course you know there's as you're saying about the younger versus the older in this Jewish context, the story we've got uh, intentionally, the guy is out there in a foreign place with swine and so forth. So maybe you could draw out for us some of the symbolism in the parable that Jesus's listeners would have been attentive to, that maybe we pass over, you know, not being as, as sensitive as they would have been to the particular ideas that he's bringing up here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so most commentators, I think, agree that the, the imagery here is probably intended uh, for us to think of the historical context of the Jews and the Gentiles. One theme in Luke's gospel, which runs throughout and also through Paul's literature, and of course Luke and Paul are related, Luke's one of his disciples, So, is the idea that God created all of the cosmos and all of humanity descended from Adam. And so in the end, all of humanity descended from Adam, made in the image likeness of God as his own children, just like a child reflects their, their, uh, their parent, has broken away from that family throughout salvation history, and God is trying to bring them home, bring them back. And so if you re- we read the Old Testament, right from the beginning, there, we hear about two lines from Adam. And there are those who don't want to be part of the family of God. And there's those who do. And then we, we continue to hear about that after the flood. We hear the same thing. We hear about those that are in communion with God and those that are not. And it's from that line of righteous men that Abraham is called and God finally brings them into a special covenant with him to restore that relationship properly, at least in a certain degree to what was there in the garden. And throughout salvation history, then the rest of the Old Testament, we find this story over and over how 
how there, there's the people of God and there's the ones that are not. There's the Gentiles. There's the pagans who are also equally descended from Adam. And God desires, St. Paul says, that all men be saved, though not all will. So we, when we read a story like this and we put ourselves in the first century context, it, uh, it tells us in a, in a kind of in a little microcosm the bigger story that's going on. There are, if, you wanna, if we want to place the characters here, as often people do, the, the one, the son who receives uh, his father's wealth and takes off and blows it in a foreign land, that's the Gentiles. They are descendants from Adam, just like the Jews are. The Jews have been with God for the long haul. Since the time of Abraham until the present moment, there's been some stumblings, of course, <laughs> number of stumblings like that Babylonian story, but they're, they've been with him for the long haul. They've been out in the field working, right? Like this, this other son here, working in the field, working in the field. And, but then we come to the first century and the, and the new covenant with Jesus. And you go into Acts the Apostles and you see a problem. Acts chapters 10 and 11, you encounter a problem. And that is the Gentiles want to come in. And the Jews are saying, no, 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 no. Now you want to come in? Right? So the Gentiles are coming in, and they come in simply by being baptized. You've got a, a pagan Gentile who's descended from pagan Gentiles since the time of Abraham. And they say, I, know want, I, I don't want to have that life anymore. Mm -hmm. I want to return to, to the create, my father, the creator. And they repent they're baptized they're chrismated they receive holy communion all in one service and all of a sudden there they are it, it, they go from one day they're a stinking pagan gentile and the next day they're sitting in the community meal with the jewish christians whereas these jewish christians who still understood themselves as just primarily basically jews messiah he was a jewish messiah have a descendancy it goes all the way back to Abraham, and they have been keeping the law and doing what's right, at least trying, to do what's right for 2,000 years since the time of Abraham. And so there's this tension, you can see it in Acts 15, when the, the Jewish Christians are saying, many, the leaders among the Jewish Christians are saying, no, 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 they must keep the Torah. They must be circumcised if they want to be saved. They've got to keep kosher. No, no bacon. So, so they're trying to impose upon them the, the old law, and this becomes what's called the Judaizer heresy. And so many commentators suggest that, that's, that Luke's parables often uh, are maybe suggesting that context of uh, two characters, one that's kind of been be following along all the way and then gets frustrated, especially here, and then the the other one who just blows it, he's, he's a disaster, but then through repentance, he's brought back into the home, into the family meal. And so there's that value of repentance that is important for all of Luke's gospel and, of course, for us. You know, um, I'm, I'm glad you went in this direction with the understanding this gospel in terms of the early Christians. I think most people 
myself included, oftentimes even trying to gain the context of the gospel text, forget that while the gospel is relating to us a true story of what took place in the life of Christ and the true story about his teachings, nevertheless, being it is being written oftentimes 30, 40 years later after the resurrection, and therefore within a context in which the story is being told in a way that is catechetical for the early Christians. So while it is relating a true story of something that happened 20 or 30 years ago, nevertheless, it's being told in such a way that is helpful to this particular audience. Certainly, there's much to say from a, from a spiritual homiletic standpoint. That's not the goal in our studies here, but to do exactly what you just did and help to understand its, its original context in which the story is told. And of course, this then placing ourselves in those years following the resurrection can make a lot help us understand more this theme which is which is really stressed here in the text about the son being dead and coming back to life in light of the baptism of the Christians into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as a way to undergo this entire process of exile of restoration of uh, re- return to paradise and communion with God in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in light of our baptism into that, into that mystery. Um, Father, let's take a look here at the epistle which is given, which is going to follow on, on much of what you've already said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 through 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 through 20. Brethren, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are fitting. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of anyone. Food is for the belly, and the belly for food, but God will destroy both the one and the other. Now the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. For God has raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a prostitute? By no means. Or do you not know that one who cleaves to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For the two, it is said, shall be one flesh. But he who cleaves to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every sin a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your members are the, temp- are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And that you are not your own, for you have been bought at a great price. Glorify God, therefore, in your body and in your soul, which both, which both are God's. You know, we, we, we continue now here in the epistle. Again, a theme that's been, been brought, forward, you know, brought forth by the church uh, for our consideration, and that is... Um, uh, our identity in Christ as, as temples of the Holy Spirit. Of course, a temple is a place where worship takes place. It's a place where the presence of God or the gods who are worshipped 
uh, is, is kind of manifest. And we've had this theme now uh, a number of times of the question of what do we worship in our life? Father, here in this context in 1 Corinthians, obviously picking up many of the themes that are present in the parable of the prodigal son. But here, what's going on in Corinth in those early days of the church such that St. Paul needs to speak in this way about the food versus the body, about being joined uh, to, to a, a prostitute and so forth? Sure. Yeah, this is uh, certainly kind of shocking language, I think, for, yeah. for, for, uh, for us today. Uh, so the Gentiles, when they came in, they had some problems that they came in with. The, the, Jew, the, the Jews, when they became Christians, had their own issues. They brought in baggage. When the Gentiles converted in this early church setting, when they came in, there were certain cultural problems that, that they had. And we're seeing that right here, the two big ones. In Corinth, for example, or Ephesus or Athens, the city-dwelling Gentile was surrounded by pagan temples. And these pagan temples were part of their culture. Today, it's, we're, it, we're surrounded by churches. I, I know some, some streets you'll drive by, you'll see a church every other block on the other side. You know, one's Baptist church of this, the Baptist church of that, you keep going. So, and those people don't go to each other's churches. <clears throat> but in Corinth or in Ephesus, you would have on every street, every street corner, you would have a temple to one of the gods, but you would go to each one of those on their special feast day or whatever that these polytheists would go to worship as many gods as they possibly could. As we've seen Athens with St. Paul and Acts, they even have a shrine to the unknown God in case they missed one. So in the pagan temples, when they went in there to worship, the city dweller to offer sacrifice or participate in the sacrifices, the burnt offerings and things on the altar there, they engaged in the liturgy that was going on in that service. The farmers and things, the ranchers from outside the city were bringing in sheep and, you know, and bushels of wheat and jugs of wine and all these things that they had raised out in the, in the hills around the city of Corinth. They would bring, the, bring in their goods, offer them at the temples, uh, give them to the priest. The priest would take some, and then they would go to the marketplace and sell it and then go back to their farm or their ranch. But the city dweller living in the high rise, the way he worshipped Zeus or venus or aphrodite the the greek version was not bringing in a bundle of wheat or that he had raised or some sheep or something and offering them to the priest to be offered on the altar he went in there and he had money in his pocket and he took the money that he had he's a city dweller, so he's got money and he would give the money to the temple to the servants of the temple to the priests and then he would participate. Now, if it was a, uh, a there, if he wanted, he could participate, for example, the Temple of Zeus, through eating some prime rib. He'd sit down at a table, as we read in 1 Corinthians, and it's in chapter 8, verse 7, and following where he picks up on this, of sitting down at an idol's temple and eating. It was like a restaurant. They didn't have restaurants. These were the restaurants. This was the Denny's. This was the McDonald's. This was the, if you wanted to eat outside your home, you went to a temple and sat down and ate. This was part of their culture. 
just like a city dweller today, someone living in the middle of a big city, you have to think, how often do they go to eat at a restaurant? They tend to, if you live in the big city, they tend to do this very often. They would go to these restaurants, not just to worship, but actually to, to eat. And then at the temple of Aphrodite, you know, or some of these other, some of these other cults, they would put some money down the table and they got a prostitute. And so you can imagine their Friday nights where they were spent, they were spent very religiously in the temples. And these people, Paul, Paul says, he says this, if we go back to chapter six, look at chapter six, verse nine. He has to warn them about this because they're starting to slip back into the life that he had called them to. Mm-hmm. It says in chapter six, verse nine, do you not know that the unrighteous, those, those who do not follow God's ways, will not inherit the kingdom of God? There's that theme of inheritance for us. Mm-hmm. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Neither the immoral, the idolater, the adulterer, nor homosexual, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor robbers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then, and this is almost like a, a throwaway line often when people read this, but this is, I think, the most important line here. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. So he says, look, you've got this Corinthian community who have, who have forsaken their past. Some of them were, were homosexuals and prostitutes and, and, and whatever else you can imagine. And he says, and, and pagans, they're all pagans, of course. He says, he says, you can't, you can't go back to that life. They've been, you've been, you were that, but you've been saved from that. You've been baptized. You've been chrismated. You've received the Holy Spirit. You've become a member of the body of Christ through reception of the Holy Eucharist. But then the Corinthian community and Paul's absence in between his founding of the community and his arrival during his third journey. There's this period in which they start slipping back in Paul's absence into the culture. And the primary attraction for them are, is the, the temple system, the eating of the food offered to idols and, and going to the cult prostitutes. And Paul says to them in verse 12, he quotes a saying that they were saying. He had received a letter from Chloe's people. They were saying, all things are lawful for me. I can do this, right? I know Zeus is no God, so why can't I go to the temple of Zeus and eat? I know that Venus is no God. Why can't I go down and see the, the cult prostitutes? And he, said, he says, I know you're all saying all things are lawful for me. And this is Paul, but not all things are helpful. The Corinthians are saying all things are lawful for me. Paul says, but I will not be enslaved by anything, right? You're enslaving yourself, just like that prodigal son enslaved himself. Verse 13, they were saying, food is meant for the stomach. And the stomach for food. Come on, right? It's prime rib at, at, at Zeus's temple tonight. <laughs> and he says, God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And he goes on to talk about the cult prostitution problem as well. And, uh, and so this was a problem for them back then. And also, I think, 
uh, you know, we might even talk about it today of the, the problem of, of dualism, of what they do with their body being distinct from their faith, as if there could be some sort of a disjunct there, you know? The um, um, understanding that that historical background, I think, is very helpful as we apply it then to this coming Sunday and what the church is asking uh, of us. You know, I remember one of a modern biblical commentator who who said that uh, regarding Israel's exodus from Egypt, that he's in commenting on that text, because they, they, they come out of Egypt, but then, they, of course, they stumble at the sin of the golden calf and during their 40 years of wandering, he says, one thing to get Israel out of Egypt, that's another thing to get Egypt out of Israel. So while they physically leave this place of slavery, they return oftentimes in their heart to the very place they hated. St. Paul oftentimes struggles with that same reality, his realization of, of sin in his life. And here the church is asking us in the story of the prodigal son in this text here to place ourselves within that context. And, you know, it was just, just as I usually do at this time, I pull out that the old classic from Schmemann, Great Lent, A Journey to Pascha. And I, I want to encourage our participants to dust off your old copy of this and get it out because it's very helpful, simple in many ways, but very helpful to get back to the foundational themes of the spiritual life at this time. And he says this about this coming Sunday. He says that on the third Sunday of preparation for Lent, we hear the parable of the prodigal son. Together with the hymns of this day, the parable reveals to us the time of repentance as man's return from exile. The prodigal son, we are told, went to a far country and there spent all that he had. A far country. It is this unique definition of our human condition that we must assume and make ours as we begin our approach to God. A man who has never had that experience, be it only very briefly, who has never felt that he is exiled from God and from real life, will never understand what, Christi what Christianity is all about. So, you know, as we come to this Sunday, um, it's so important that we have this theme of repentance, this, this realization in our life of exile, um, and also the remembrance of where we have come from and where God is calling us to. This is why in Holy Confession, we confess before the icon of Christ. I, I think I've said before, <clears throat> that confession is not primarily about confessing our sins. That is part of it. But it's, it's more importantly, primarily, first in order to confess who Christ is. And it's only in confessing him before whom we stand in holy confession, before the icon of Christ, that we can realize how far we are from the high calling that we have as sons of God, as baptized members of the church, as temples of the Holy Spirit, as those who have, as St. Paul says here, been purchased at a great price. And it's only there then that we can begin to journey back to him once we remember the homeland, the way life is supposed to be. Let us conclude today with this, the sad, but also very beautiful text that we sing in the Kentuckian for the prodigal son. When in my wretchedness, I ran away from your fatherly love. I squandered in wickedness the riches you had given me. And so now, like the prodigal son, I cry out to you. 
I have sinned in your sight, O merciful Father. Receive me now that I repent and make me as one of your hired servants. To Christ our God be glory, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Byzantine Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.